I've always been fascinated with the way some people gravitate towards certain professions. Some folks just seem destined to become teachers or they're perfectly suited for a career as a news anchor. But what about a career in social work? Is it possible to be made for a career helping others in need? Well, Dan Brack is just that kind of person. Dan is a licensed social worker who specializes in veterans' assistance. In 2012, Dan worked at the Cuyahoga Jail in Cleveland and gained a tremendous amount of insight on the lives of people in prison and the system that was designed to take care of them. On today's episode of Wokefu, Dan and I chatted about everything from child abuse and trauma to the emotional thick skin needed to survive as a social worker. Pull up a seat, light a joint, and let's go down this rabbit hole together. Welcome to the Wokefu Podcast. A conversation about the hidden strings that shape our culture, politics, and our identities. I'm your host, Rudiner Meninga. Hello. Hey, hey, what's going on, Dan? I'm all right, you? Pretty good, pretty good. Um... So we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, Dan, can you tell mm-hmm. us uh, what type of social work uh, you've been involved with sure. for how so long? To, sure. So I've been, sorry, I've never gone live with the with this model of iPhone. So I'm no probably looked it on at the camera. Okay. So um, I've been licensed since 2012. And the first place I worked in, oddly enough, I got my job offer exactly 24 hours after I graduated, after they told us to expect to be jobless for six months. So they were wrong. Um, <laughs> of course, I'd interviewed weeks before, so that was still a nice surprise. Anyway, I actually started off working for three and a half years at the Cuyahoga County Jail here in Cleveland, Ohio. And if you do even the most cursory amount of research, you'll see that we have well, I'm not, there's not a we anymore. I don't work there anymore. Um, you will see that the U.S. Marshals, even under the Trump administration, went in there and wrote 56 pages of what the fuck are you guys doing? I mean, it's public record. Go look it up. Um, the, the worst of that stuff wasn't happening when I was there. But anyway, I was a social worker there. And you can actually go look my essays up on Medium where I was trying to explain to people around 2015 what's jail really like and how's it different from prison and what are some things that jail inmates face. Um, so that's where I worked for three and a half years. And basically my job was to help inmates connect to the outside world, their lawyers and their families, and try to know what's going on in their court cases. Um, then in December 2015, I... Are you hearing a lot of background noise or just me? Um, I can't hear anything on my end. Um, is oh, it, did... Are, are I, you still I, able to hear, hear me okay? Yeah, yep, yep. We're good now. I think I was... Did, did you lose all of what I was saying back there? No, no I, I heard you all good. Okay, great. Never mind. I think it was me jiggling a cord. Okay, never mind. Um, so in December 2015, I went over to the VA which is far afield of what the previous guest was talking about. Um, So obviously all of my clients are veterans now. Uh, And a very wise old social worker uh, said to me a few years ago, the VA is easy mode for a social worker, and it's really true. A lot of the things she talked about aren't so true for me. I think a lot of community social workers would uh, kill for the kinds of capabilities that are now at my fingertips. Um. You know, if I want, if a veteran tells me they want to get a job, for example, 
and if they have a severe mental illness, then there's this wonderful thing called supported employment. Supported employment is an entire model of, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm answering more questions than you asked. Uh. <laughs> no, no worries, no worries. Um, you can go ahead and finish uh, what you're saying though. Sure, sure. Supported employment, to give you one example of the tools at my disposal, is premised on the idea that even if you have a severe mental illness, and if you want a job, then you should be able to have one. And we're not talking about the bad old days of you're going to sit in a, a big old warehouse and just do crafts. It's you can have a job just like anybody else can have a job. A specialist will sit with you and figure out what is the best intersection of what you want to do and what your skills are and what's out there. And they go out with you and try to find a pla you know places for you and help you with building a resume, interviewing with management, and... You know, once you and when if you get a job, helping you to build and sustain a positive relationship with management, and so the sky really is the limit. You know. Wow, I I really appreciate you joining on. I think that your perspective um, will be very illuminating for everybody. Um, my first question, leading into this, is um, what were your expectations going into this type of work? And now that you've been in here in the industry uh, for for how many years? Uh, how do you feel now? And how, how have your opinion has changed since you first joined? So this is kind of hilarious. I am, if you count it the right way, I am the third in a, a third generation social worker. So on my mother's side, so my grandmother was a social worker. My mother's a social worker. And here I am a social worker. And then on my dad's side, well, my father's a psychologist. Uh, so I grew up around mental health. A funny story I can tell to illustrate this is that back in high school, I had times when I worked hard and times when I didn't. And one of those times when I didn't was most of 12th grade. I was in AP Psych, and I got caught completely by surprise. If I'd been paying attention, it wouldn't have been a surprise, but caught completely by surprise by a, uh, a chapter test on uh, pathological, on, on psychological illness. And the test was, it was... It was it might have been hard, except I had the upbringing I did. It's like, oh, is the disease symptoms sound more like bipolar or more like schizophrenia? Hello, easy. So I was raised around all this. None of, it, none of it was really surprising. I was expecting a lot of people with a lot of trouble. And you know, the first suicidal person I knew came to me when I was in sixth grade. I somehow attract these people. Um, uh, people who were hurt seemed to come to me. And that's been the way it's been since I was a kid. Just somehow the way my life is. So what was I expecting? I was expecting that the world was full of pain and that you have to have ways to protect yourself from that pain while still being an asset to those who are in pain. So that was what I expected and that's what I got. I don't think I was too stunned by it. Um, in terms of the actual first job I got... I'd say all of these shows we have about jails and prisons give you this idea that inmates are essentially these animals who are going to reach out and try to kill you. And that's just not true. So I was scared when my boss took me on my tour of the jail, and then I calmed down pretty fast. Because they're just people. It's just that simple. They're just people. So um, I would say that working in the jail was the big difference between what I thought was going to happen versus how things actually were versus being a mental health worker, which I was raised in. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. No, yeah, it, it totally makes sense. Um, it's pretty fascinating that you talk about having this, um, you know, multi-generational, um, you know, experience with your, your, your 
dad being a psychologist, you said, um, yep, yep, yep. And, and your mom being a social worker, mm-hmm. uh, given all of that background knowledge that you had coming into this, um, how would you say your experience differs in terms of people who might not know so much about the, uh, about social work and they sort of get into it as sort of on a whim, um, like, it seems like you have, you've, you've been able to, um, get to a place where, you know, you're doing the types of work that you want to do. Um, are there sort of levels in terms of, okay, like this is what a more experienced social worker, um, needs to know versus someone who's sort of starting off. Sure. Um, I think the single biggest thing that was easier for me versus hard for a whole lot of people is, and depending how it comes at me, the amount of pain I can metabolize from the world around me is, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, I'm just saying, matter of fact, I can take a whole lot more than most people can. Um, Like when I'm on Facebook and I see a trigger warning this, trigger warning that, it's like, I ate this shit for breakfast. It's like, oh, the sheer number of clients that told me they were beaten, whipped, naked in a basement. I can go home and be with my family, and I can be fine. It just rolls right off my back. I'm really good at taking it most of the time. Um, so if, if that makes any sense, that I think a lot of social workers, um, if you aren't prepared to have a way to really safely metabolize the sheer amount of pain in the world that we get uncensored, that does not show up in your newspapers, if you don't have a way of taking that and, and being safe with it, you're going to burn out so fast. And I was raised around sort of knowing that that stuff was out there. It's not like my parents let me get at that stuff, but I knew it was there, if that makes sense. So how, how do you parcel those things out? Like, how do you, you know, go eight hours listening to people's stories and hearing these things that, you know, you know might resonate with your own personal life? And how are you able to go home and sort of allow that to kind of be something that happened at work versus, okay, now I can go ahead and live my life? Uh, years ago when I was in college, I think I really internalized something important, which is that you can only be helpful to others if you realize they are riding their roller coaster. And if you ride the roller coaster with them, you're going to be useless pretty fast. You have to be able to say, you are walking your walk and I am walking my walk and I'll walk with you, but I will never for a moment think that your problems are mine because they're not. It doesn't mean that I don't feel compassion for you. It doesn't mean that I won't work hard to help you in your life, but your problems aren't actually mine. And the moment you forget that is when you're in trouble. Um, So does that make sense? No, yeah, it definitely makes sense. Uh, Do you, um, you know, do do you have any certain uh, cases or particular issues that, you know, you might have a soft spot for that you're like, man, like, there's just this one particular thing that um, is a little bit more difficult to sort of handle. I mean, I, I'm sure that you've heard sure. so much yeah. before. Sure, 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 sure. My one spot, the only hole in my armor is kids getting hit. Um, because It's funny because I didn't grow up getting hit. I didn't. I, it was a strictly anti-hitting household. Um, but the first time I saw a kid get hit, I was four. and He was just running away from his mom, and he just got spanked. It wasn't, to most people, that big of a deal. But you have to remember, I didn't realize it was a thing. Like, if you'd never seen a car and then you saw one, was the size of a shock. If everywhere there were horses and you saw a Ford, that was the size of a shock. And I was just stunned. So, um, now, of course, if, there's no such thing as a child veteran. Um, <laughs> it's not a thing. 
So I don't work with children by definition, but there are children around. Um, the last time I almost lost control of myself in public and I just couldn't let myself do it. If this is sort of the question you're asking, I was sitting in the DMV waiting for one of my clients to do their thing. And there was a uh, person talking about, they were with their, they were there with their son and they had a big branch in their hand. And I was just sitting and letting my client handle their thing. And I was just listening to the conversation this person was having with some woman. And what he was basically saying was, oh, this is our stick for walking around. Like, so basically there was a smaller stick for beating the kid with out in public and then a bigger one at home. And I'm like, that's a rather large branch you've got there. I'm thinking like, think baseball bat size, roughly. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Oh no. And I just, and there's nothing you can do because Jeez. in this country we've decided that it's okay to beat children. Even though it's, it's funny because the evidence base that beating a kid even whatsoever, like even a little spanking people would say, we know we have great evidence, but this is actually just that, that, that there's no such thing as good hitting. There's, it's not a thing. Spanking is just bad, period. Our evidence is just as strong as, as how we know that climate change is a thing, that anthropogenic climate change is ruining the world. Our evidence base is pretty much about the, the same strength, but it gets chalked up in cultural differences and acceptance and all this jazz. And it's like, no, it's bad. Stop it. Um, so I just sat there. I knew there was nothing I could really do for the kid because it didn't look bruised and bloody. And I just tried not to start sobbing because, you know, you're out in public, you're a VA social worker. This is not the time nor the place, and you just shove it back in you, and maybe later in the day you can let it out. So that was really hard. Um, so, wow. it's a so at least they didn't hit the kid in front of me. I don't know how I would have dealt with that, but um, hearing about things that have happened to people decades ago, I can just ride that out with them. Damn. Um, I mean, given how much... Enough... Hmm? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's perfect. Um, right. So, given the um, the work that you do, and I, I also wanted you to go ahead and you know um, a little bit later talk a little bit um, uh, about what you wrote uh, about the differences between jail and prison. I'm actually interested sure. to hear your take on that. Um, but how would you assess um, sort of the the stress and mental health impacts of this line of work? Uh, for you personally, how is it? Sure. Doing? Well, lately it's not been so bad. Um, so it's funny. Um, <laughs> the main stress of my job is not to do with the clients themselves. It's that I have been in an aberrant number of car accidents. Um, I have been, and this is going to be so much fun. Do you feel like playing a guessing game? No, probably not. I don't want to always turn my <laughs> live cast. Um, I have been not at fault, most of them not in the government vehicle, but I have been not at fault in nine car accidents. I was actually um, going to guess nine, but... <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So, what um, happened? So it's, and I mean, none of them have been serious enough to hospitalize me, break bones, any of those kind of things. Never been in the emergency room for any of them. I got hit by a bus once. Um... So it's, it's funny Gosh. because that's like this, it's like an expression, oh, we get hit by a bus. Well, I've actually been hit by a bus. <laughs> you have to laugh because otherwise what, is, what else is there? So anyway, so the main stress is that I have to, I'm driving to most of my clients' homes. You learn much more about a person by being in their house. 
than you ever will by them being in your office. I don't have an office. I just have a desk and a row of desks, which don't hear me complaining. I'm fortunate to have my job. I'm, it's a privilege. Um, this job doesn't suck. I'm, I'm, I'm paid well. The benefits are good, which a lot of social workers can't say, and I don't for a moment forget that I'm really lucky to have this job. So, but it's, it is the stress of all of the driving. And of course, the more driving you do, the more bad drivers are going to be around, the more accidents you'll almost avoid or not avoid. Um, the more Greyhound-sized tour buses can hit you and force you to rear end the car in front of you, which is being driven by a woman who's going to an appointment for her transplant. So, you know, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like... So, so that's the stress, like, specifically for me. Um, but again... I'm unusual in my capacity to metabolize the pain around me. Not everyone is that way. Um, and then, you know, after you build this really human relationship with somebody, you have to go and write it up and write it up very carefully. Good charting. So, so it's interesting. Good um, medical charting is extremely different from what makes good academic writing or what makes good journalism. In good medical charting, you should be using as few words as possible to communicate exactly what happened, not more, not less, and keep your opinions about the event or the person out of there. Um, so it's not eloquent writing, it's extremely purposeful writing. And knowing, of course, the whole time that you absolutely could be called to court for anything that's there, and that you know what you write could have real implications. Like, for example, if the client has a criminal record, are you going to characterize it or does it even belong in there? And ultimately the verdict lately is if that criminal record in no way impacts the capacity to achieve their goals, such as get a job, get housing, it doesn't need to be in there. So like if you have a, a 30 year old felony drug possession, I really don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Not just personally, but professionally, not going to get in the way of probably what you want to do. So uh, it, you're, you know, you're, you're talking about how you, are in a position where you like the job, you, you know, the, the benefits and the pay is good. Um, you're able to handle the sort of emotional baggage that comes with working with uh, these types of issues when dealing with these clients. Uh, what would you say is the hardest part of, of your work? Mm, the, having to juggle so many balls at once, knowing that each of those is a unique human life that has value and you know, worrying what's going to, if you, if you drop a ball and everyone drops balls, it's part of being human. You drop a ball. Well, that ball wasn't, you know, something that didn't matter. It was a, it's a person's life. And so what the mistake you're going to make and how big a mistake and what's the ramifications in that person's life. And it's going to damage your career, by the way, because you have those thoughts. So it's, there's a lot on the line. I mean, I've definitely had plenty of moments of irrational worry of is that has this client completed suicide which by the way i've never lost one you know in that fashion never happened um and and there are perfectly good practitioners who have that happen but you know you you worry you know when somebody isn't communicating with you or i'll you know what a tense moment is you know we, we try not to have a situation where we unfortunately need the police or the emergency services to bring somebody forcibly to the hospital but i've certainly had them and those moments when the decision has been made to issue what's called the pink slip, which to everyone else means getting fired, but in the mental health world means forced hospitalization. When you've pink and you've gotten the person to be pink slipped, but they aren't yet safely um, in known hands, that suspense of what's happening. You know, have we gotten to them? Are they safe yet? 
that's always scary. Um, I mean, and, and this is it's interesting because um, you know my family is filled with nurses, and and one of the reasons why I've I've always told the rest of them like, you know, they're all Filipino nurses. That's great, but you know, I just could never feel responsible for doing a type of job where I'm responsible for someone's health um, or mental health. And uh, it's, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine it. Um, but I, I, I commend your bravery for being able to do this type of work. Um, I, I don't even feel like I'm brave. I'm just a person who does what he has to do. If you feel your, if you, I just, I don't experience it as bravery. It's just necessity. When it, when it comes to you being able to do your job um, and you're talking about having to juggle all these different balls, um, what would you say um, you need to be able to do your job better and more efficiently? Do you think that there are certain areas within the system where the pipes are, you know, are clogged and we need more resources yeah. in this area, in this area, in that area? Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Unload on it. Not, I'm not going to blame the VA here. There's not, you know, are my local VA is excellent. It's a place where I'm proud to work. So I'm not going to go criti criticize the VA. Um, I don't mind criticizing the rest of the welfare system because first of all, let's talk about the word system. It implies that there's a system. It's not a system. Do you know what the American welfare system is? It is a patchwork. It's a series of patchworks put together where the one hand doesn't know what the other is doing where the websites don't give you clear and up-to-date information, and where, by the way, don't even bother calling the Social Security Administration on the phone because you will be on the on hold for six hours, 12 hours. Like, that, that work day is going to be gone, and maybe they won't even be able to help you when you get them. I'd rather sit in the social work office and wait for the morning, maybe, to get an answer than call them. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wish that the American welfare system, which doesn't deserve a name, but let's, you know, would actually become a system, would actually become a single whole cloth <laughs> system and would have far better customer service with more staffing. Like, let's say I call, I mean, maybe you've had the experience if you say you call Amazon's tech supporter, Amazon supporter, you call Apple, Microsoft, you're going to be on the phone with a human being pretty fast if you want. That's just not the case with Social Security. This is the same federal government that put men on the moon, that you know, built the atom bomb, that waged World War II, that stopped the Nazis. Now we can debate the morality of some of these actions, but they happened and they took extraordinary logistics. They took scientific problems to be solved that people had never imagined solving. But now we can't staff a call center? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so the... Poor customer service. The sheer amount of time it takes to get anything done is maddening to me. Um, and just the lack of truly systemic thought that goes into it. So uh, how would you, you know, in, in looking at this patchwork of different programs that uh, don't necessarily talk to each other and they're not sort of integrated in a way where it's like, oh, you're getting this service. Well, you know, you're, you're in this little hub and you can sort of just move around. Um, like if you were to sort of um, be part of a committee that was responsible for taking this patchwork and making it more cohesive, um, what do you think is needed to make this thing work? Do, do we just need like a fancy little app or like a, a particular uh, new program to uh, 
exist, you know, all over the country? Like what needs to happen in order for all these things to work? Or do we need oh, to man. cut certain things and revise them? Like how do we move um, forward? Well, firstly, just in terms of the customer service experience, I'd want to hire way more people because I shouldn't be waiting for hours and hours. Um, if I call social security or any of these other things, there should be a very clear flow chart as to exactly what do you need and how to get it. Um, social security uh, offices should have enormous parking lots instead of teeny ones that force you to just go up and down side streets and good luck. Uh, <laughs> when you're waiting at the social security office, there should be a way to figure out exactly how long it's going to be till you're called because you actually have no idea. It's like waiting for an execution. I mean, I shouldn't say that that's too flip, but you really have no idea how long it's going to take. And I've, and I don't know if you've ever sat in a social security office, but you know, I have. And so what mm -hmm. happens is, you know, there's parents and children and they're trying so hard to keep that kid under control, which good luck. Oh, and one of them needs to go to the bathroom. Oh, and let's say you go when you're in the bathroom and now your name gets called. Oh, and you're in the bathroom too. Bad. Back to the back of, oh, shisa, you know? <laughs> and so that's the customer service is such a problem. Um, but also, we have to think of why do we have this? The Social Security Administration has its origins in the New Deal. The, what the New Deal did was to make capitalism bearable for people for whom it was unbearable. Really, you know, depends which historians you talk to. You know, conservative historians, though they're wrong, would say that it unleashed the cancer of welfare upon the American people. I hate that, but that's how they think. And then more leftists would say it held back a revolution, which I tend to think is true, because the rule of law was starting to disintegrate. Um, so is our purpose to make capitalism just bearable, or is it to make life better? In which case, you need to start experimenting more with UBI, which we don't have evidence that UBI absolutely definitely works. But you tell me how you're going to survive on $730 a month. Uh, yeah. Right? Um, and so, so I, I actually want to, um, I mean, I, I'd love to, to, to talk more about UBI, but obviously uh, that, that'll be Yeah, that's a whole stream. other thing, can of um, worms. But um, I, I want to hear more about your, um, your opinions on what you were speaking about earlier about jail versus prison. Sure, uh, okay. Tell me about that. Okay, so um, I'm going to do something. I'm going to blame the media. Um, if, raise your hand if you've read you know, an article saying, oh, such and such will do 30 years in jail. No, they won't. It, what a jail specifically is, like what they do is they use the word jail um, synonymously with prison, and they need to stop it because they're confusing everyone. And people who are system involved know the difference. People who aren't, they don't, and they won't know it. Jail is specifically for people who are awaiting trial. Um or who are serving time on a misdemeanor. Like, you know, waiting felony or misdemeanor trial or serving time on a misdemeanor. Some, except for very, some very low-level sentences in certain places, you're probably not going to literally go to jail on a felony. So what a prison specifically is, is it's for people who have been either found guilty or pled guilty to a felony and who have been sentenced to, to prison or to death for that felony. And by the way, since plea deals make up 
95 or even something like 98%. We don't have an exact number, but more than 90% of American court cases, whether for rich or for poor people, uh, and in plea deals, they almost never are getting found guilty of anything. Very few trials go to jury trial. So um, you, you're, you're saying that the, the nature of your work is sort of helping... Um, people who are in, uh, you said jail, right? Or, or is it well, it was. Uh, that, that was until December 2015. I don't work there anymore. Okay. Uh, but <clears throat> when you did, uh, you said that yeah. you were able to, you're sort of working as uh, a mediator between them and sort of the outside world. Um, yeah, they was connect them to the world. I mean, this was, yeah, they, it's so hard to be on the phones in jail. It's so hard to communicate. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly, like, let's say, so I don't know about you, like, for example, like, I'm going to guess that all the, the people who are important to you in your life, I'm going to guess you don't know the vast majority of their phone numbers. I'm going to guess your phone knows them. I'm going to guess your Google account or whatever account you happen to have, it's probably sitting on a server somewhere, but you don't personally know the names of five, the numbers of five of your good friends, right? I don't either. Um, used to when I, in the early 90s, but things were different back then. So you're cut off and calling on the phone costs an extortionate amount that would never be tolerated in the regular customer space, but they can get away with it because it's the definition of a captive audience. There's all kinds of regulations about sending mail out. And if you don't know those, you're going to get tripped up. It's a system that's very good at keeping poor people poor. Shit. Absolutely. Um, like what if it were a few dollars to do a local phone call completely normal in a jail? And is there, uh, like, what resources do you have at your disposal? What tools do you have at your disposal to be able to sort of help these people? And what are some of the most common, uh, what are some of the most common problems uh, sure. that you're Sure. So what I, would, what I encountered back then, here's a few things. So first of all, they would say, just when's my next court date? Because they didn't know. And their lawyer, who typically they didn't have the money for a lawyer because if they were in jail, it was because they couldn't afford to bail themselves out. Um, it was a, either a public defender or a court-appointed lawyer, so people who were private attorneys but who the court would pay a certain amount for. Um, now, I don't know the slang everywhere in the country, but here the inmates would call those lawyers their public pretender, which was kind of brilliant. I don't know who invented that or if it's local or if it's everywhere, but I was like, yeah, that's about right because it seems like most of them, except for the really good ones, you know, or spend a half hour of your life with you over the course of months and tell you to plead out. Anyway, so it's like, when's my next court date? Because my lawyer is not telling me. Um, it's call my my girlfriend, call my mother, call my this, call my that, and tell them to put money on my commissary account so that they can buy things like phones, phone, pardon me, phone cards, not phones, so that they can buy hygiene items. I mean, they're going to be given some basic hygiene items at the beginning, but to get a more full kit or to get snacks, more clothing, these types of things. Also to buy um, pens. There's, so one thing people don't necessarily realize is that there are a few companies that make products specifically for the penal environment. So for a good example of this, there are special pens that are flexible because a normal pen, right, you can, I'm not sure why I'm showing you a pen is if you don't know what they look like, but you can stab somebody pretty easy with a real pen, normal pen. Mm -hmm. But if it's all bendy, it's pretty hard to stab somebody with. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So there's a lot of products that are built specifically for the penal environment to reduce the danger from them. And there are ways to turn all of those things into weapons, which 
in the service of being vaguely responsible, I probably shouldn't go and describe those ways, but it's not that hard to think of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we get um, that, 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 that art lesson will be for another time. Um, so, then, uh, uh, so it's, I mean, yeah, inmates are brilliant engineers. I'll say that. Um, brilliant engineers. Um, so it's, it's basically connect me to the world and give me resources. That's the answer. They have no idea what's going on. Um, and in specifically the jail where I worked, um, they never went outside. All the recreation stuff was indoors because the Cuyahoga mm. County Jail, if you go ahead and look at it on Apple Maps or Google Maps to pick your poison, but just Google it or whatever, and you'll see that the Cuyahoga County Jail is two high rises right off of Public Square in downtown. And how weird it is that here in this rapidly gentrifying downtown, you have a jail with more inmates than many prisons have and it's two blocks off of Public Square. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing bitterly, but it's kind of, in a really dark way, it's kind of funny, right? And, most, and, and people don't even know it. I can only imagine, like, the, you know, the people who are sort of in there and they can have that view of, of that city and they can sort of, ooh. Um, oh, yeah, and, and they're not on direct line of sight with it, but they're essentially right next to a Hilton that got built in the last few years. I watched it go up. Um, I, I I watched them film Captain America Winter Soldier. I mean, I was you know the scene where um, <laughs> Bucky and Captain America are trying to kill each other. That was literally filmed outside my workplace, and I, I was in a I was um, standing in a barred window with an inmate, and they'd been they'd been doing the same things over and over. And he says, "Oh, they're gonna do this, and then they're gonna do this, and then they're gonna do this." So I watched it get filmed from the jail. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> That's insane. Um, so, Dan, um, my, my, my two last questions. Um, what would you say is the biggest misconception about uh, social workers? Oh, man. Biggest misconception. Um, not aimed really. I don't feel this personally because I've never worked in children's stuff, but that we're the ones who take your kids away. I mean, and I get it. I mean, taking somebody's kid away is really the worst thing you can do to them. I'd rather be killed than have my kid taken away. Because mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I guess at least if I get killed, my wife can raise him. But, you know, if he gets taken away and put in this awful foster system, and by the way, I've worked in there too. I've seen our excuse for a child welfare system. I just wasn't licensed at the time. Um, that's a, We haven't even gone there, but I've, well, I've worked in that hellhole. Um, worked in a children's homeless shelter. Awful. Anyway... Um, people hate us because they say, oh, you know, you let you, you're taking the kids away and you're letting the kids die. And so there are some social workers who deserve, deserve some of that blame, but also realize that there are social workers and then there are social workers, um, at least locally. Department of Children and Family Services hires childcare, you know, hires social workers, but they're not actually licensed social workers, and the government can just get to call them social workers. Wow. The way this has been explained to me is, you know, normally it's a crime to call yourself a social worker if you're not no differently than practicing law or medicine without a license, but the government get, gets handed a big exemption for that, and they can call somebody a social worker even if they're not. So Anyway, we get blamed for things that aren't necessarily our fault, like how bad the child welfare system is. It's not my personal fault. I had nothing to do with it. Um, but, you know, there's a whole chain that makes bad decisions. There are judges, magistrates, police. Um, 
And by the way, um, the policies people have set up that, you know, it's not abuse unless we see marks on the kid. Right? Did you know that? Like, Like, if I see a kid get spanked, that doesn't count as abuse. I have to hit my, did you know this? I'm curious, did you know this? Okay, this is pretty much standard. This isn't just local. I have to beat my kid hard enough that literally there are welts in order for it to enter that level of physical abuse. Wow. I have to really beat the shit out of him. Not just a spanking would do it. And that, sort, and, and that stipulation essentially, you know, exempts so many acts of violence that will totally fly under the radar. Absolutely. Like if I yelled at him right in his ear, you fucking moron! And then I swatted him on the butt. Now, reprehensible, traumatizing, perfectly legal. <laughs> Whew. Um, so, Not that I mean, I've done those things, but the thing is I can do it and totally get away with it. So, I mean, it's seeing all of this and, and, and being a part of um, this type of work for so long and having it in your family, um, would you say that social work is meaningful work and do you yep. see yourself oh, staying? God, yes. Oh, yes and yes. Well, first of all, the VA is a great place to work in terms of my personal plans. There's no reason why I would leave. Um, but there's something more to it than that. We know we have talked so much about pain. I've talked a lot, <clears throat> a lot of pain, many different kinds of pain, but I haven't talked about and maybe should have the privilege of watching somebody rebuild. It's amazing. You can, I've seen people make such recoveries, whether it's people who you know, talk about the recoveries they've made in the past, going from you know, penniless drug dealers to people with a rich, fulfilling life, or somebody who came in catatonic, which, by the way, if you, I'm not, not everyone watching this is a mental health worker, catatonic means a state of depression so profound that you're just lying in bed, essentially immobile, like your depression physically immobilizes you, and you just cannot move. It's almost a paralysis. Um, goes from being catatonic to bright and happy with the aid of, you know, intensive therapies. So I have the privilege that most people don't get of watching people become more than they dreamed. And it's, you know, just really seize their potential and recover. And to, to be able to watch recovery is such a privilege. Like, to give that up, no way. Wow. That's actually really beautiful. I mean, it's almost like... <laughs> essentially watching and having the privilege of watching someone's life, you know, go through this metamorphosis. Um, I, I remember, and this is a totally different um, scenario. You know, I remember uh, when I was working at apartment complexes and watching, you know, working with clients for a full year that they would stay with us. And you can sort of see just through observance of, you know, watching their lives change. And I can only imagine uh, the type of work that you did, which is a lot more intimate, and you're able to actually see what's going on with them personally. I'm sure that you've seen just so many different uh, stories and so many people sort of lift themselves or, 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 or you know, progress in their life. Um, again, I, I really appreciate you coming on, Dan. Um, sure. Is there, are, are, are there any projects or any things that you're, um, you're working on that you'd like to promote? So not personally of mine, but a cause that could use lots of support. And I don't know about any current fundraising activities, but just sort of keep it, keep it in your awareness. So every summer, I volunteer at a, uh, it's called Camp Lilac. It's a sleepaway camp 
for transgender and gender diverse youth. It's, you know, it's everything a normal sleepaway, I shouldn't say normal, traditional sleepaway camp is like, you know, tie-dyeing and archery and swimming. It's all that stuff, but it's also, you know, if you need to learn how to bind, they'll teach you. If you want to learn how to do makeup, if you want to learn about the medical and financial aspects of transitioning, all that stuff, they'll teach you that too. Now, I don't go there as a social worker. I actually do something completely different, which is, um, if you know about poi, fire spinning, I go mm. out and I spin fire for them. And then I also do poi lessons, not with fire. Um, wow. That's so that's, a that's an entirely different side of my life. And so I've been volunteering with them since their founding. And so whenever, no, I don't think that they have an active fundraiser right now, but people should keep that on their radar because there aren't not too many camps like this. I think there's, I mean, we're the one in the great, we're the one in the Midwest region. There's one out in the West coast somewhere. There's maybe one in the South. I mean, there are not more than maybe several camps of this kind in the United States. We have kids coming from Michigan, Indiana, not just Ohio and one from, and I'm not even going to name the state because I need to be super, super careful. Like, we observe the same rules as a domestic violence shelter in terms of I don't tell people the location. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know it. But, you know, one kid come away from a very Western state that I would have thought, why didn't that kid go to the California camp? And the answer apparently was because they were full. But uh, it's like, wow, the reach. <laughs> um, so it's a privilege to be part of this. And I always shout their name from the hillsides because I do not have a SoundCloud. <laughs> <laughs> There is no SoundCloud, <laughs> and you do not want to hear me sing. It's it's a punishment usually. Uh. <laughs> well, and um, again, uh, thank you so much for for illuminating um, on the subject, and I, I really appreciate it. Sure, thank you for having All me. Right. Take care. Take care, Dan. Bye.